Hey guys, this is Pastor Kyle here alongside Pastor Bailey. Grateful that you guys have tuned in to our podcast. We trust that what you're about to hear will be beneficial for your day, and we're grateful that you've stopped by to hear what the Lord is doing in Milledgeville. In your seat, please go ahead and turn to Judges 6, as this morning we'll be looking at verses 25 through 32. And as you do that, join me in prayer. Father, thank you, first and foremost, not for what you give us, although that list could go on and on from our breath to the breakfast we had this morning, to the clothes on our backs, the shoes on our feet, anything we have has come from you. So while we are gracious, for your goodness, we come to worship who you are. Sovereign King, faithful Father, Savior of sinners, and the one we need this morning. So God, as we're gathered here as your body, it is not in question whether or not we will meet you here. As you are already here. And your children. And your sons and daughters. So then. All that we ask. Is that we would leave. As if we've come face to face. With our creator. Soften our hearts. To your truth. Open our ears. To your words. Move our feet to your mission as we give our all for your glory. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Semper Reformanda. Semper Reformanda is a term derived from St. Augustine all the way back to then. That means reformed and always reforming. Reformed and always reforming. History has much to say about the church and her great reformers. From the father of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, in his 95 Theses back in 1517 that refuted the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that was taught then and still today of salvation plus works. Followed nine years later with William Tyndale translating the New Testament scriptures to English in 1526 only to be burned at the stake 10 years later in 1536, his final words being, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. In the same year, John Calvin wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion, kindling the flickering flame of the Reformation. Calvin would then soon meet John Knox in 1555 during one of the three times Knox was exiled from Scotland to Geneva, only to further reform his theology and send Knox back to Scotland and lead the entire nation to reformation to the point where Christianity was not just the religion of the nation, but the law. The list goes on and on. The last great Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, to the Prince of Preachers, 
Charles Spurgeon, to the gentle lion J.C. Ryle, to the late R.C. Sproul. The church has no shortage of faithful men that God has raised up to fulfill the call of semper reformanda. In the same sense, it has had no shortage of those who would adorn the bride of Christ with filthy rags. This morning, we continue the story of one of the earliest reformers of the church, Gideon. In Judges 6, verses 25 through 32, read with me as we'll be studying this today. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal. And cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him. Because he broke down his altar. We see here the people of Israel again continuing their backslide of sin and must ask what is important about this altar, as it is the key to everything we'll be talking about this morning. After Gideon built his altar to the Lord, we see in verses 25 and 26 that the Lord again came that night. To meet him, saying, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal. Giving these instructions to Gideon to further his obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. But why is this significant? Is this just another thing for Gideon to do? Is it just to prove his faithfulness? Let's look and see some of this context. And first, define who it is that the Israelites have made pretend gods out of. We see their names, Baal and his goddess, Asherah, the gods of choice for the Israelites at this time. We look all the way back to their time of freedom between Jabin, king of Canaan, earlier on in chapter 4 and 5 of Judges, and the Midianites, under who they are held captive now. The Israelites became bored and fashioned for themselves gods of their own liking rather than the one that had delivered them. But who are these pretend gods? Who are these idols? Asherah was known as the goddess of agriculture, good land and soil. And Baal was most known 
for being the God of human sexuality. Does this sound familiar to a people bent on pleasure rather than holiness? Notice also who has made the altar of Baal. It is no coincidence that it is Gideon's father, Joash. This may speak to the reason why Gideon is being called to take his father's bull and correct what was done. The altar was the pinnacle of improper worship for the Israelites at this time as they were stuck between sin and the hard place of oppression of the Midianites. What God deserved was being given to Baal. What was meant for proper worship was tainted by the Israelites' intentions and motives. They were in no way seeking the face of God, the holiness of God, their own holiness, and were instead furthering the filling of their bellies and the hardening of their hearts with pleasure and cookie-cutter idols. Thus, God raised up Gideon to reform the worship of his Israelite people from the inside out. Who better fit for the job than the son of Joash? We recall last week, the less than family. But we see here Joash had built the altar. This is to assume that he was the pinnacle of the town. He was somebody of authority. So then we know the mission given to Gideon. But do we know its purpose? In the same way we know, in many ways, the mission given to us to pursue holiness, to make disciples, and to teach the nations. But do we know the purpose of that? Let's look here and see the significance of this mission. There was none more purposeful. Just consider already. Joash, Gideon's father, the one who built the altar. Gideon, Joash's son, the one commanded by the Lord to tear down the altar. This family, the less than family of a less than people who were somewhat leaders of the little village they had built up for themselves. And Gideon was going to flip it on its head. We can see in verse 26 that the altar to Baal was atop the stronghold of the town. This isn't just significant as it was viewed as a pillar of the people, but it's also ironic because remember, they are oppressed now, raising up their grain in secret out of fear of the Midianites. And instead of building up a stronghold of their defense, they debase it for a pretend God. This stronghold not meant to be an altar, but to be a thing of defense for the people of God has now become a pretend thing for a pretend God. There's of no consequence that what was meant as a defense against the Midianites had now instead become an, an offense against a holy God. Verse 26 also shows us that Gideon was commanded to, to stack the stones in due order. Now at first read, this may just seem as if Gideon knew what he was supposed to do, and that is true. He was to take his time in doing this. You could imagine Gideon, not to read into the text, but he was fearful to do it by day. And so he hurried to do it by night. But he was told to do it in such a way that was calm and specific, to stack the stones of the new altar in due order. That is to say, to stack them very carefully according to ancient law. 
redeeming the altar to be a stronghold, what it's meant to be. Notice here the Lord already redeeming the worship of his people, already in what he's commanding Gideon to do, reclaiming his glory. And finally, order is shown as the bull is being sacrificed on the fire of Asherah. Now, what is significant about this goddess of agriculture? Next to the stronghold or lack thereof that the Israelites had raised up as a false altar for a false god of Baal was this grove of trees that were graven in images of this goddess. This, this beautiful uh, mini forest, if you will, that the people could walk through and see what they were worshiping, or, or so they thought at that time, images that would evoke emotion and make them feel as if they were worshiping, all the while not even knowing what worship was or fulfilling it. This is exactly the forest that God had commanded Gideon to cut down and listen to this, not just to cut down and leave in a pile, but to use as kindling for an offering of his father's bull to the Lord. See again God redeeming his worship and having his glory. Although the Israelite people intended uh, for Baal this false worship, God would have his glory whether they knew it or not. So then I must ask, what, a, what again, a more perfect reformer for this mission than Gideon, son of Joash, who had not yet bended his knee, along with his ten men of his servants, just like the rest of his community had to Baal. He was not just fearful because it was his father's bull he was reclaiming. He was not just fearful of Baal, he was fearful of the Lord. The bulls who were intended to be sacrificed to Baal are now worth something. Not because of the order of their sacrifice, but because of who they're being sacrificed to. See God redeeming his people, their worship, and having his glory. What a grace he is dealing with, with such a wretched people. Let's pause for a moment here and consider just, just how foolish the Israelites had become. Again, while under watch of the Midianites, to the point where they had to farm and do what they were doing in secret, threshing wheat in the wine press, they debased their stronghold to build an altar not of a god, but of their appetites. Which, mind you, is exactly what led them to where they are now. They have opened themselves up to all kinds of attacks because of this. Not just on the front or in the back, not just physical, but primarily spiritual. They have shown the wide open target of their sin to an almighty God. And they have turned their worship of that God into worship of playthings and emotions of what they would prefer, not what they need. How could they? How could this adulterous people, God's people, so drastically fall away here, placing themselves under captivity doubly so 
of the Midianites and of their sin. God's people, yet again, instead of God being their hiding place, they find it in a bastardization of an idea of God and Baal and his goddess. This God they once proclaimed and cried out for. Well, folks, praise God that rather than working through altars, he now works through living stones. Amen? Praise God that he is building us up as a living temple. Amen? Amen. Praise God that Christ is the cornerstone of his church. Amen? Amen? Then why is it today that we debase that same temple with an idea of worship and not one of pureness in heart? Stacking up our own altars of our Baals and our Asherahs. Maybe not just us in this room, but the church at large. We say amen to these things, but why do we compromise the kingdom of God and our day-to-day life just so we can have our own little sandcastles and counterfeit Christ's? The church at large resembles the Israelites in this chapter far more than we'd like to admit. We have been set free. For freedom, we've been set free in Christ. Yet we're bored. Christ has come. We're promised he's returning. The Israelites were delivered. They promised they'd be delivered. Yet they're bored. We're bored. The church becomes bored. We take what is the believer's stronghold, that is, the church, and turn it into a tourist center. We neglect to be ordered as living stones carefully, as verse 26 says, each equipped from the womb with a unique purpose and identity before and of God to fulfill the mission of God. And instead of being stacked in submission to the Lord, we stack ourselves as a house of cards according to what we want or how we feel. Our altars of worship and sacrifice are downgraded from offering ourselves as living sacrifices through the bearing of our cross as Christ bore our cross to a Bible verse and an Instagram bio. The church at large may not have a grove in its sanctuary, may not have graven trees, or even graven images of idols, but they do have their lights and their video boards and their conferences and their social media campaigns and their philanthropy their unity events with people who don't even worship the same God, their college ministries, their small groups, coffee shop hangouts, Sunday schools, all that could be used for good, instead used to point those in attendance to themselves and what they think about God rather than God himself and who he says he is. Here's the thing this morning, and to borrow what Vodibachum said in 
which I took the liberty to add to. If you cannot say ouch, or if you can't say amen, say ouch, and then pray later that you can say amen. The things the church offers up to God today, again, the church at large, are not much different than what God's people of then, the Israelites, which Kyle said this morning we're grafted into. It's the same people. It's not much different to what they were offering up then. Actually, in some ways, what the modern evangelical, seemingly Protestant church offers up is worse. Because at least the Israelites were honest that they were worshiping another god. I'll say it again. The worship that goes on today is going on now in some places is in what I would hold worse than what the Israelites then were offering up to Baal and Asherah because at least they were honest that they were not actually seeking God. Consider the horror of the blind leading the blind to a shade of God when there is not. What then will they say when they arrive at eternity's gates and have no true worship to offer? Continue reading with me, verses 28 through 32. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Remember Gideon and his ten men, who had not yet bent their knee to Baal, probably made it pretty obvious who had torn down this altar. Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself. Joash, remember, Joash, who erected the altar to Baal, saying this now. If Baal is a god, let him contend for himself. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Here's a couple of things we need to, need to pay attention to here. Remember I said earlier uh, what Gideon was fearful of. was not the action of this or disobeying his father as his father was not leading him to obedience and God. Just a side bar there. What he was fearful of is the Lord. Consider this. And he even knew the penalty of his actions was death. Yeah, he did not fear death. He feared his God. He knew the penalty was death, and he was willing to face it. And then Joash, quite the dynamic character in this story, the one who had raised up this altar to this plaything, the Lord is using him to show again how he is lavishing his grace on Gideon. 
How easy could it have been to Joash, a seeming leader of the people in this village, say, have him. He's not even my best son anyway. But he doesn't say that. As a, as a matter of fact, he says, you can, you can try it. You'll be dead by morning. Now, is this because Joash has repented and turned to God? Many scholars think differently on this. I would hold not as of yet, but simply out of fear of God in the same way that Gideon feared God. So Joash looks on his son and thinks, what in the world could have driven him to tear down this pillar of our town? What could have caused him to be so dedicated? Out of Gideon's fear of the Lord, I would hold Joash as responding not necessarily out of reverence for God, but out of fear of God. Calling down the God they thought they had, saying, if he is indeed a God, let him defend himself. What, are you going to protect him? The power of God, then, is on full display through Gideon's actions. Because of his faithfulness, he makes it obvious who he is worshiping, and it is not himself, it is not Baal, and it is not Asherah, it is Yahweh. The only response is to challenge whatever other God people raise up and let that God come toe-to-toe with the true God. And that is exactly what Gideon did. But... Friends, as Kyle mentioned, we had the privilege of attending a conference held by Faithful Brothers in G3. It was actually funny enough on the topic of worship. And it was fitting this morning. I told Kyle I was supposed to finish out chapter 6 but could not get past the altar. And did not feel as if I could do it justice if we just missed this. And would not feel right if not following the conviction that the church today, again, while it may not be but all, fashions its own God of human sexuality. While it may not be Asherah, fashions its own God of greed and having what they want. And, and I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the professing church. Maybe some of us in here this morning, because here's my fear, folks, is, is whether or not those of us in here this morning are uh, alongside those offering up false worship, we are certainly complicit in allowing it. On this campus, in this town, in this region, of standing by and letting people paint a shade of our God, as if he needs help, of standing by and letting people sing anything they want about God and who they think he is, instead of singing psalms and hymns and what God has ordered for his worship, of standing by and let people talk about how they feel and how uh, they feel God is working and how they heard from God 
and not saying anything about it. Well, well, maybe it's because we know. And we'll go back and pray for them because they need it. But I would contend we need the prayer of faithfulness. The church is anemic compared to what it was and what God intends. Isaiah 44, 6 reads, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. I am the first. I am the last. Not just beside me in my presence, but beside me in existence. There is no God. So then, all the Israelites are doing is worshiping themselves, which is praise of Satan. All some of the church does today as they worship an idea of God or present to the world a approachable God is not worship of the one true God. We fill stadiums. We have keynote speakers who aren't even equipped to be speaking. Not by man's standard, but by God's. We have yearly mission of purpose and coming to the table of saying peace, peace. When God looks and says, there is no peace. Listen, we, we don't settle for adulterous examples on this earth. Why do we make God out to be an adulterer? As if he'll just take any bride. As if he'll just take uh, this bride here because that's what they felt. As if he'll just take the bride of yesteryear or the progressive version of his bride. She needed a new dress anyway. Why do we superimpose our adulterous hearts onto a faithful God? And, and listen, again, even if we don't do this directly, we are complicit if we do not call it out. Why would we let somebody else tarnish the name of God, even in their thought life? Listen, I'm not saying this to give you a warrant to go out and be a jerk. I'm not saying this so you can go out and play Pharisee. I'm saying this because this truth that's supposed to be delivered, tempered by love, isn't actually done if we don't lovingly tell Others who profess the same God we do, that what they say is not true. If you don't believe me, go home and do a study for yourself of all the number one, two, and three top chart worship music. Go home and study Bethel's lyrics 
and elevation worships lyrics and Jesus cultures lyrics and see how many times you could interchange boyfriend for God and tell me that's worship. Truth and love, folks, it is not. Truth and love, our God deserves his worship as he orders it. And if you know this in here this morning, then he has sent you to reform not just the world, but the church. The classmates that you know that would not agree with this, that God saves by his grace alone, and it has not a thing to do with man's choice. That God alone is sovereign and does not wait around for the will of his creation. That God alone will be glorified. If you know this, fulfill your call. Call out the gods of culture. Call out the gods of Christian relevancy. As if Christ could ever be more relevant to a broke and dying world. Maybe for yourself, call out the gods of acceptance, of comfort. Well, I'll get to that eventually with them. I I hear you, Pastor Bailey. I, I will have that conversation. You're not promised your next breath. Neither are they. Where are you both going to end up before a holy God? What will you have to present? Maybe one of you Christ and maybe the other self. How much time will you have then? Call out the God of whatever you spend your time doing and filling it with, the words you speak of and your mind thinking on, if it is not the glory of God. Because here's the truth, for many of us in this world, we have either made our own Baal of ourselves or are accepting and patting others on the back as they worship a false god. And this is not intended to be a got you sermon in any way. It just is to call to mind the truth of Scripture, even all the way back in Isaiah one, where God is burdened with false worship. He says, I do not want your burnt offerings anymore. They burden me. The God of the universe, who created all of this, you, me, every fiber, every particle of every star. And what is burdensome to him? Not creating the world, not sustaining the world. False worship. What grieves him? The sin of his people. This is a simple call of semper reformanda. We think this finished with Luther and Knox, Edward Spurgeon, St. Augustine. Flawed men, but made faithful by God. 
I would wager, folks, that it does not take more than a brief look at the news side by side with a clear reading of Scripture that things are coming to a head. This is not an end times bit here. This is a, there is no better time for proper obedience and worship than today and now. Take time in your life. Consider blind spots. And please, please, do not confuse our marching order that the world will know us by how we love one another. No wonder the world does not know the true church because in not presenting one another to truth, we hate one another. If not spurring one another to God and not just our personalized ideas of God, we hate one another. What better defense could you offer your brother and sister in this room than holiness of God? Not just good advice. Not just a listening ear. Yes, those things. But even more so, sound counsel of Christ. Because here is the meat that covers all the bones of this. The Israelites were indeed the people of God, but they are on their way to becoming a stumbling block. In the same way, just because somebody says they're a Christian today does not mean they are. Just because we all file in on church buildings in the morning does not mean we are all the church. Just because we all may wander away at times and need the help of a faithful father, father a sheep, does not mean we are all sheep. There are those who are goats. There are those who are well-meaning. They are the ones that will hear on the day of judgment, depart from me. I never knew you. Father, Father, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Did we not throw this conference in your name? Did we not play this music in your name? Did we not draw your people near to you with our words in your name? And what will God's response be after all his grace has been poured out? Depart from me. I never knew you. I'll end with this. It's fitting today that I'm wearing the tie I got to wear on Abby and I's wedding day as it falls in line with what I think is one of the most beautiful images we can see of the church, us of the church, being the bride of Christ and God preparing it faithfully, pointedly over time to present as a perfected bridegroom to his son, Christ. It makes me think of how I was turned from Abby as I had not yet seen my bride. I knew she was coming. 
I heard the music. I knew she was going to round the bend of the chairs. And my brother and pastor Kyle would tell me, turn, see your bride. And I would, and I did. And, And all beauty and splendor, perfect in my mind and eyes. A day that was all a blur, and I can't remember much other than that, of hearing my brother say, turn, see your bride. I I had the greatest blessing of my life and ever will have of turning and seeing my bride, who God had made and built and perfected on that day. Christ is awaiting his bride. Christ is awaiting his bride. He has been promised by his father, she will be pure. She will be perfect. Not because of who she is, but because God has made her to be. Knit up together as living stones, rounding the bend of eternity. What will happen if Christ lifts the veil of his bride and sees a prostitute? An idea of his bride. A modification of the church. It will certainly not be the fulfillment of a covenant of eternity. Listen, he is preparing his bride, his way, by his glory, for his people's good and his eternity. He has not left wiggle room for a flawed people to craft a version of this bride as a filthy rag to throw up to God, to offer to Christ. He has not done this. So why do we let others do so? Remember, this is not license to go and throw Bibles at people. It is simply a plea to live by this word and to call those who claim that they do to do the same, to fight for the bride of Christ, to boldly proclaim when somebody else is presenting a God of being faithful and finding a way of showing them this is not the God. of loving God enough to do so, remembering how he has loved you. So, Christian, go home. Clean up your playlists. Delete songs that do not draw you near to the God, but make you feel frilly things that will be gone the next minute. And we'll need another hit like a drug. Stop listening to fools just because they stand where I stand. 
and because they talk loud and do fun things with ping pong balls and red Corvettes. Don't perpetuate hatred of God when we are called to enjoy and love him forever and ever. The world does not need well-meaning Christians. They need the Christ that makes Christians who they are. The world does not need good suggestions. Women do not need the call to wash their face or to stop apologizing. Just as men don't need the call to do what they feel and be boys. The world does not need a five-step program. They need three words, repent and believe. From not well-meaning, good-spirited, kind, Southern Baptist Christians. From faithful sons and daughters who are not just giving advice or kind words, but are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Who pray in such a way that God collects their prayers as incense and hears them. That sing in such a way that doesn't just heap honor and glory and praise on their God, but rejuvenates their souls. Who don't just say they're about making disciples, but get up and walk on their feet and act as disciples of Christ. Semper Reformanda. Reformed and always reforming. Not changing. Reforming. From the root, reflecting Christ. We're not going to go on like it's another normal Sunday. And this is the part where I pray and the worship comes up. And we sing faithfully as they faithfully lead. What we will do is take time to sit and reflect and tear down altars of Baal and Asherah and burn them up. Sit and pray. Get on your knees if you have to. Not for attention, but out of appreciation and respect for the glory of God. Grab a brother and sister if you need confession, but here is love and truth. Friends, brothers, sisters, world, do not dare leave as if you did not meet God today. He is here and his children. Don't dare blaspheme his name by just going about your business. Take time to sit and think. I'll come back up and pray and usher us in to our next time of worship. We will not have music playing. We will not have uh, fog up here. Take time to sit, reflect, rejoice, repent, on God. Kyle and I will be in the back. If any need to talk, and if more so, 
if you have an idea of God and that has been shredded to pieces today, I call you now repent and believe. Today is the day of salvation. Sit and pray. And we'll continue in worship here shortly. Father, be with us as we reflect, as we remember who you are. Give us proper love of you. Fix our short-sightedness of how you have loved us. And before we leave here today, God, your sons and daughters, continue to shape them to look and act and speak and pray and worship as if they are your sons and daughters. And if there are those who are not yet, pierce them with conviction to repent and believe as only you can. We ask this by your glory, your power, and in your son's name. Amen. Take time, church, to sit and reflect.